0: Well, as we continue in worship this morning, <clears throat> if you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, a little bit over, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and we are uh, going to look at uh, verses 7 through 11. Paul has been challenging the church and reminding the church, He's, he has spent a couple of chapters just really encouraged, right, about the unity and these good things coming together and, and giving, and then he comes to chapter 10 where he starts to go back and deal, right, with the reality of false teachers and false claims. We see in Paul that even though he is a, he's an apostle and he has a right to, to pull that, that, right, that card out, that title out, he is slow to do that. He's always slow to do that because he realizes he He doesn't want it. It's it's not about him. It is about who he represents. And he will not let false teachers come in the church and teach anything that is contrary, right, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's his heart, right? We see that as we, uh, I pray, we desire to model that in us. One of the things that I think is happening in, uh, and I imagine this is true throughout history, is, right, the... um, the more the morphing of words right the etymology of words and where words come from and how they how they morph right we understand a, a word differently today than what it might how it might have been used back a while ago and so things kind of evolve and change and we have this tendency to to do that even with words within uh, christianity right we have a tendency to change maybe the definitions use the same words right? Equivocation is the, is the word for that, where we use the same words to them differently. And I think that's happening. There's a, a tendency today to, to put a lot of adjectives in front of the word Christian, right? As if Christianity is an add-on. My real identity is whatever adjective I put in front of that noun. Right? We can you can be a a transgender Christian, you can be a homosexual Christian, you can be whatever you want to be, but the identity is in the adjective and not in the noun. There was a story of of a lawyer who was graduating school and before the West was fully conquered, he told his roommate, who was a believer, heading into the ministry. He said, I'm heading out west because I want to go where there's no churches. No Sunday school, no Bibles. I'm sick of it. I'm heading west. Within a year, he writes to his roommate, asking him and begging him, as he now he's a young minister, would you please consider coming? Would you start a church? Would you start some Sunday school classes? Would you preach? Would you be sure to bring many Bibles? The closing of his letter, because the question is there, what happened? He goes on, he says, I have become convinced that a place without Christians and Sunday school and churches and Bibles is too much like hell for any living man to stay in. Well, this is true, right? I believe it is true. There is only two spiritual families there is light and dark. There are those who are in Adam, in Christ. There are those who belong to Christ, the family of God, or your father is the devil. The Bible says there's only two. And when one is absent, right, if the light is gone, darkness prevails. As we see in this, Paul is going to utilize his authority, in the passage we'll read here in a moment, as as an apostle. We are not apostles, but we are to glean from what he is writing and what his instruction is and how we are to stand, not as those who put any adjective in front of what it means to be a Christian, we stand for Christ. We engage in the spiritual warfare that is in front of us, all around us. So even though we're going to look at verses 7 through 11, I'm going to begin chapter 10, verse 1, to remind you of the context of what Paul is saying. So beginning in verse 1, chapter 10, 2 Corinthians, he says this. Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I am, who I am, excuse me, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh Right, that is calling or calling Paul a non-believer. Verse three, four: Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. And in verse 7, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. Or even if I boast somewhat further about our authority which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. Might read a little sarcasm there. Verse 10, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this that what we are in word, by letters, when absent, such persons are, we are also indeed when present. Covers a lot of ground. He says a lot of things. Let's ask the Spirit to help us as we look at this passage. Father, we thank you again for your word that is truth. We ask that you would unfold it for us today. Your Spirit would instruct us in it, that we would not simply gain knowledge, even though that is a wonderful blessing, but Lord, it would be implemented would lead us to a life of pursuit after you, a life of holiness, a life of obedience, that our thoughts, Lord, would become captive to Christ. So bless this time, and Lord, get me out of the way that we would receive what you have for us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, as I mentioned earlier, right, we, you, I, everyone who's breathing, whether we know it or not, is in a spiritual battle. Now, Paul in his passage doesn't say, hey, guess what, guys? You're in a spiritual battle, right? He assumes this, and he writes this way. If you think about the words, right, the military words that he is using, I'll just, I said this a few weeks ago, I'll say it again. Verse 3, he uses the word war. Verse 4, weapons, warfare, destruction, right? Verse 5, destroying speculations, lofty things. Verse 6, being ready to punish all disobedience. So Paul has this, this idea, this picture that he's running with, that you and I are in a spiritual battle. We are up against uh, the spirit of the age, the, the God of this world of Satan. So we, we looked at in those first six verses, right? The, the, the warfare, the weapons and our warfare. I spoke of the character and the contrast of our weapons with the world. Right? We approach these things with the meekness and gentleness of Christ, but with confidence and courage, right? We are unyielding, and we must engage in this, right? We must bring down strongholds. We must engage in ideologies, philosophies, uh, worldly ideas, worldviews that are contrary to Christ. This is what it means. And then I said we must resolve to finish the battle, and I spoke of how these things are present in our living rooms and how the enemy packages them in our young ones, our loved ones, where it leads to us compromising. I also spoke, uh, mentioned of the, the opening of that message about these two boys reading Daniel, and one saying, we need uh, Daniel had an excellent spirit, and he misspoke spirit and said, spine, and I, I kind of want to drive that once again in front of us, what we need and what we're, in, what we're heading into, we're going to need an excellent Spine. Last Sunday, I thought by way of encouraging you and strengthening you, we looked at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, where we talked about the power, right, The, the richness of God's Word. It addresses our greatest need. It calls us to discipleship. It's completely trustworthy. It's beneficial for every area of our lives. But I ended my last point, and I know you know it. I know you remember it. As you listen and remember all that I prayed, right? It must be implemented. And this morning, is, is, as we look at, as Paul navigates this church and as he's operating clearly as an apostle, as he's writing with authority, we are not apostles. But I put this in the context of what do we glean as followers of Christ? What is our spiritual authority? Well, my first point is simply this. The first uh, nine words in the English, at least in my translation, it was the first four words of Greek in the first part of verse 7. Our authority is proclaiming God's truth. Paul says this, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. Now, we'd say you know, it's, I don't know a person's heart, but he is assessing and clearly by what Paul has said and his stature and his cowardness, right? He's impressive in letter, but weak in person. Clearly, they're working, they're looking on things outwardly. Now, for us, what are we to understand? Well, we have to realize that we don't speak. when I, when I mention our, our spiritual authority, it's not our own authority, it's not Tyson has authority. It is me as a follower of Christ pointing to God's words. It's God's word, his truth that has authority. We do not speak to my own purpose. I don't endorse the enemy's lies, but I do speak God's truth to the enemy's lies. And what's interesting of these first uh, few words of this verse is that we can look at it one of two ways. It can be written as an indicative. They are currently doing this, and this is how it's translated in my translation You are currently looking at the things that are outwardly. That's his his charge. Some of you might have a translation that's written a little different as an imperative, a command, where he's saying you need to start looking. Look what you're doing. Now, regardless of how these might be translated in your version or my version this morning, the point is simply this. He's telling the Corinthians, you have to adjust your perspective. You are looking things based on appearance. You are listening to these false teachers, as he told us back at the end of chapter two, or just peddling the word of God. You're listening to the peddlers. You're listening to those, as he'll say in verses 12 and 13, those who claim their own authority. That should be a red flag, Corinthians They claim their perfect heritage, chapter 11, 20, and 21. They claim their visionary experience, right? And the Corinthians are dazzled by this. And Paul is saying, you're looking at the wrong things. Authority doesn't come from these things. It comes from the truth of God's word. This is very common, unfortunately, in our day. There was a pastor of a, of a small church who was, was challenged by what was happening in a mega church in his town, and so he took some time, and he, and he wrote an email, and he wrote to this pastor saying, look, you're doing all these seeker-sensitive things, and you're, you're looking to this, this big production. Why are you doing this? And his response was simply this, you know, this. He says the CEO pastor, he wrote back and said, we are running 700 people on Sunday mornings, how many have you got coming to your church? So we, we get dazzled by these things, don't we? These big productions and right the right speaker, but we're looking, when we do this, we're looking at the wrong things. We have to change our perspective. Our authority comes from proclaiming God's truth. Paul has told them this in his first letter. I'll read it, Listen. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. What we win them with, we win them to. Paul's saying you didn't win. You didn't come because Paul was elegant. You became a believer because God is powerful. But this is not a new struggle, is it? We see this even in, in Old Testament. I mean, think of of. of st- King Saul losing his, his kingship, and God tells Samuel, I'm going to anoint another. Go to Jesse's house, right? Imagine this scene all the brothers come by. And no, no, no. And even like you think of Jesse, right? David's father, where, he, where Samuel has to ask, There's none of these. Do you have one more? I can imagine that moment where his, his father goes, Oh, yeah, the, the poet, right? Out watching the sheep. Go get David. Samuel doesn't miss it. Samuel sees, right, by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is the one. He's not as tall as his brothers. He's not as old as his brothers. Is out with the sheep. He's the one. But go forward. That's for Samuel 16. And going forward, what is David? We've got this young David who goes. His dad says, go to the front lines because we're fighting the Philistines. And there's this big Goliath gentleman who is right out there. And then we have this, this impasse. David takes some food to his brothers. He goes, What's going on? He sees Goliath. He sees him, him taunting, right, the Israelites, and David's going to do something about it. You look at the response. His brothers blow him off. Who are you? Go back home. King Saul says to him, You are but a youth, while well, he has been a warrior from his youth. Listen to David's response. This is a picture of spiritual grit. Your servant has killed both. Now, metaphorically, right? You can kill the lion and the bear, but your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. I don't know about you, but it sounds like what he is saying the weapon of my warfare is not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Isn't that what Paul just told us? Then we see Goliath looking at the wrong things, isn't he? David goes out to Goliath. Goliath. He says, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. What's amazing is if you back up that story just a little bit, we have Saul going, okay, I don't have anyone who wants to go against Goliath. Got the shepherd boy, let's just call it a day, we'll end up surrendering, who cares? Right? That's where he's at. So he goes, Well, we don't want it to be too bad of a too big of a slaughter. Here's my armor. Right? Here's my advice. Here's what you need to do. Here's some tactics. David rejects all of that. This wonderful picture, right, of rejecting what's not important, standing on what is important. See, our authority following after Christ comes from his word, not ourselves. It's God's truth. I mean, the Holy Spirit hasn't changed, has he? We know faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, and yet how many times will we not open it? How many times will we, like the Corinthians, go about looking upon things outwardly? See, many professing Christians and churches are losing their spiritual authority simply because they're not opening God's word. Their weapons ultimately become fleshly, the divine power is empty. The fortresses remain. So Paul says, you need to adjust your perspectives. Our authority is God's word. And then come to you all these different ways. I came with a message. Christ am crucified. So we see it, right? Overarching our authority roots in the proclamation of God's truth. Second part of verse seven, I simply say, our authority is focused. On the central figure of God's truth, if anyone is confident in himself, that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as He is Christ, so also are we. right? It's almost as if Paul is saying, "Where's the problem? If I'm of Jesus, you know I'm of Jesus, these guys are claiming Jesus, there shouldn't be a problem. There's a problem. See, Paul understands that Jesus is the standard. He is the central figure of all of Scripture. From the very beginning with his covenant with God the Father, his plan and the the unfolding of the covenants that bring us to what we celebrated this morning of communion, to all the way till it's it's done when he comes again, all of it is about this one central figure. It's Christ. Paul belongs to Christ. He's not going to allow anyone come in and and take that that, that, uh, truth of the gospel so Paul says you need to consider, right? That's a weighty word. It means to the logical result. You need to reason this out. Right? And in the, the southern, it would be y'all need to figure it out, right? Y'all need to sit down and, and reckon this thing to figure it, line it out. I mean, everything about Paul, his salvation, his calling, his authority, his victory, it's all focused on Christ. His testimonies over and over again. I was persecuting the church. Christ had mercy on me. His false teachers are proudly declaring they belong to Christ. They had it right. These are people who are leading, right, these Corinthians away from Jesus. See, Paul seems to understand there cannot be a compromise. Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Our full devotion needs to be in Christ, because of Christ, for Christ. Our authority comes from his victory. He has overcome the world. This is why we can tell others there is hope. Brother, friend, you can too have this hope because of Christ. Our salvation, our calling, our authority, it's all rooted and focused in Jesus. See, so it begins with the fact that the gospel has changed you, at least it should be if you know it. The gospel has changed us for Christ. Paul says this in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Why, how can we know, how can we with confidence know that people's lives can be changed? Well, he tells us, listen, listen to what he says, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Or Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators or idolaters or adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. What a great truth. Every single one of us can say, I was one such as this who was heading to hell. The contrast, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Paul's told him, You're my letter, you're my proof. See, it's all about being in Christ, for Christ. We also realize that we are, as our authority is to present everything about Christ. You don't get to pick and choose. See, we're not going to help anyone by compromising the gospel. They must hear it. Paul has told them in chapter 4, verse 2 But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. We must not, our authority must be the unadulterated word of God. can change the gospel must also realize that part of our authority is resting in suffering for the cause of Christ. I know that's at the point where you're like, I, you had me to this moment right there, Pastor. Suffering, I don't know. Listen to this testimony back in uh, chapter 6, 3 through 11. It says, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance. And afflictions and hardships and distresses and beatings and imprisonments and tollments and labors and sleeplessness and hunger and purity and knowledge and patience and kindness and the Holy Spirit and genuine love and the word of truth and the power of God by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. "...by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regardless of deceivers, and yet true, unknown, yet well known, as dying, yet behold, we live, as punished, yet not put to death, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians, our heart is open wide." And Paul's got something to say, doesn't he? Can you imagine going through this and now writing to them and going, you're looking at the wrong things. If I'm in Christ, if they're in Christ, where's the problem? See, Paul understands he's commissioned. He's called. You know, Christ, you too are commissioned. You are called. Chapter five, verse 20, he says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. One of the most profound verses of all of Scripture He made Him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The Christian has profound authority when we present the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we don't negate. Uh, scripture, we unfold it from both testaments where we look in the old, proclaiming the coming of the Messiah and then unfold it in the new. We realize that our authority, right, our, our Christian following, our authority is for Christ. It's about Christ. It's of Christ. It's by Christ. We are, like Paul, begging those, come and believe, be reconciled to God. Here's where our authority lies. So we see it, right? We're proclaiming the truth. We focus on the central figure, well, what is its all purpose for? Paul continues on, verses 8 through 10. Our authority is purpose for the building of the church. He says, For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would tarry, excuse me, terrify you by my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal appearance is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. See, we are to be taking prisoners for Christ. We use Paul's language. It's for Christ, not ourselves. We're to be building up the church. And I realize there are many today misuses of scripture you can watch any YouTube video about uh, countless false teachings out there. I realize this should make us understand that doctrine matters. Right doctrine according to God's word and Paul has told the young pastor Timothy right doctrine is good for teaching for correcting for reproof for training in righteousness so we can see right a true church from a merely professing church we see in a real church Christ uh, is taking captive those outside he is he is saving and redeeming and changing and he's bringing them into the fold we see those who become part of followers of Christ become obedient to Christ not perfect But obedience, and we see the church in operation, loving one another with grace, building each other up, right? The, The leadership, taking seriously the word of God. This is what you see in a true church, the building of the church. You contrast that with the false teachers. I mean, Paul has to say, I'm actually building you up. My authority is to build you up, not tear you down. Well, clearly they are taking captive, naive Christians. I Just don't follow that guy. He looks weird. He's, he's got a lisp, right? He smells funny. That's not in there, but I can imagine. Someone, along, someone out there said it, right? You would think. But Paul has told them, we destroy speculations. Every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive into the obedience of Christ. I'm not going to tear down a church. I'm not going to rip a church apart. I'm going to build the church. So this is our, con- our con- uh, confession and our conviction is that we are to be committed, right, as a, as a church of Jesus Christ, to see non-believing people become followers of Jesus. Well, brothers, sisters, you know what that entails, that we too must be destroying speculations, We must bring clarity of God's word to those who are confused. We must be casting down anything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. To reject false teaching, we have to call it what it is. We want to see those and and those thoughts outside become captive and everything come obedience to Christ. We want to see non-believers, see them come to repentance and faith in Jesus. We want to see believers... Mature and grow up in Christ and Him alone. But somewhere along the line, here's the challenge. Here's the struggle. Here's the battle. Somewhere along the line, we've itemized our Christianity. Right? Christ is an accessory. We like the adjectives that we put in front of Christian. We are separating ourselves from him. Separate Christ from other things we do during the week. We, we take Christianity and we localize it. It's what I do on Sunday morning with these folks from this time to this time. So we separate Christ's salvation from his authority over my life. We have bought the lie today that uh, we can simply live the gospel and not speak the gospel now granted we want to have a great a right ethic but no one comes to Christ without someone explaining the gospel so what is needed today i believe we should have a sword and trowel if you will mentality in the days of Nehemiah when they were rebuilding the wall we had workers working with one hand and holding a weapon in the other in Nehemiah 4.17, those who were rebuilding the wall and those who, were, who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. There is, I think, a picture of a Christian today. We've got one hand building into the church, and we've got one hand on the sword of truth. We've got the full armor on, praying in the spirit. This is what we're doing. This is going to take work to build God's church. I don't give in. I don't quit. I don't give up means understanding the purpose of Christ, right? His mission, his purpose, his kingdom. It means being courageous. But unfortunately, the church in America is suffering. Somewhere along the line, maybe you find yourself in here, we've bought the lie that we'd simply lay down the sword because we'd rather offend God than man. Somewhere along the line, we started to exchange that trowel for building the church for entertainment because we'd rather have a crowd than a church. We've traded somewhere the pastor who stands behind a pulpit and preaches for someone who sits in a chair as a life coach because we'd rather make people happy than holy. We've redefined the purpose of the church because let's face it, I have 700 coming to mind. How many do you have going to yours? We want seats full. We don't want disciples. We've compromised ministry. See, we'd rather have cultural acceptance than followers of Jesus. We're called to build a church, I'm not called to build a crowd. Our authority is weakened when we don't take this seriously. You want to build a crowd? Get a circus going. Blow the pastor up in a car. It's in a book. He lives. Don't get any ideas, all right? <laughs> See, we're compromising our authority. Why? It's easier. It's easy to compromise with the spirit of the age. Maybe we're ignorant. We just don't open the Bible. We don't open it. We don't know what it says. We're afraid. I don't want to be called a bigot. And you're in good company if you're standing with Jesus. See, we want to be relevant. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ is always relevant. It is the greatest need every soul has reconciliation to God, their Creator. See, but here's is, here is where, it, where, does it, where does it start to work its way into your life. It is the great compromise, it is very subtle. See, compromising, word compromise, right? Doesn't mean that we simply cater or cave to the world's ways, right? We reject Christ and just buy into a different philosophy. No, what, what compromise says is that no, you can keep Jesus, but let's let's accommodate these other things. Oh, that sounds all right. I mean, most of us would recoil at the thought of tossing Jesus aside and embracing an idol. Right, as our scripture reading has said, what are they? They have eyes, they don't see, they're nothing. But we'll be okay with embracing someone as long as you don't ask me to give up Jesus. Compromise will never tell you to do that. You'll say, yeah, you can have Jesus on the shelf, but look at this other idol. What's the harm here? Let's see, that's the lie. Christ made it very clear, before me or against me, Complete devotion, love me more than your family. And see, those who accept the lie are not building churches; they're building crowds. There was an old Baptist deacon who (coughs) worked on a dairy, and he pointed the real the real reason in his mind why many churches were dying. He said something like this: "We have been milked and not fed." The preachers expect work and money from us, but they do not feed us the word of God in return. And he goes on and says, we need to remember that there are two ends to a cow. She will will not give milk unless she is fed. Our churches cannot produce unless they are fed. That seems pretty common sense, isn't it? Well, what has God given you, brothers and sisters? The building of the church. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of a stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. How sad it is today that we look to the world, teach us how to follow Jesus. So we see our authority, right? It's rooted in God's word, his truth. It's focused on the central figure of all of God's truth, on Christ, his purpose for the building of the church. And lastly, right, it's intensified, it's magnified, it's manifested is the word I put in your, in your outline here, in our consistency, Are you picking up on that theme, right? Consistent, implement, staying, keep going, right? Paul closes with this, verse 11. Let such a person consider, right? You all need to figure this out. That's what he's saying. Consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent such persons, we are also indeed when present. I would think you would agree with me that Paul is, right, that statement, the real deal, right? He is the real deal. Uh, not only am I this in, in absence, I will be this when I'm present. I think this is a call of every believer. You better be the real deal. Doesn't mean you're, per, you're perfect, but how you live your life demonstrates what you think about the gospel. So Paul refrains from naming this person. It'd be nice, right, just to name this person, but he doesn't seems to have an idea of some sort. He refers to him as anyone in verse 7, or such persons, or persons, plural. And he just simply, there is one who is causing the problem in the church. It always takes one, doesn't it? There's always one. Sometimes that one is us, right? But Paul has told them, right? He is consistent. He has told them back in chapter 1, at least for us, they'll be reading it when they get that letter right but he says for our proud confidence is this the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity not in fleshly wisdom but in the grace of God we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you he is consistent right his his walk is a walk that matches his talk he is an ambassador of Christ like you and I Paul does not approach this like, hey, I'm Paul, this, 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 and that. I have authority as an apostle, absolutely, but it's rooted in, I follow Jesus. See, they were claiming of Paul that he was dishonest. He was some type of spiritual vagabond, this nomad that's going around everywhere. His message, right, lacked any type of consistency. Paul doesn't yield. How many of us, those things were said of us, right, of our Christian walk, how many of us would say, well, shoot. I gave it the old college try. I'm, you know, I'll, just, I'll just tap out here. I mean, what more can I do? Maybe we do something where, where uh, we, we've sinned, and then we go, well, shoot, the whole thing's gone. Or maybe we need to go and apologize. Maybe we need to go fix that. Too often in our spiritual walk, what do we do? When we get a flat tire, we'll just pop the other three. Again, I know I've said that before, but I've never seen a person get a flat tire and pop the other three and call it a day burning that car down, there's no no hope here. But this is what we'll do. Paul doesn't yield. Paul has no, no reason to yield. He's been consistent. Paul doesn't bell out. He doesn't give up. Why? Because he needs these people to understand the gospel. He says, consider. Consider. He puts that in the present tense. Don't do this once. You need to continue to consider this. Think about who I am and how what I write. You all need to figure this out because I'm coming, right? He's been telling them, if you don't figure this out, well, then you're going to be the object of rebuke. He's not playing games with the gospel. We can't either. must be consistent. Paul uses the first person plural here, we, his colleagues, right? Other believers were unified in this. This is our conviction. This is where we live. This is how we go. There's unity. And Paul again calls upon the church to stand with him. He's consistent in his his letters and his his actions and his speech. So he comes through the difficulties of life. Paul is not giving in or giving up. You, brothers, sisters, do not quit. Do not yield. Don't give up. Stand firm. There is the spirit of the age which is forcing you every opportunity against for you to bow the knee, to accept that worldview that's coming through every television, movie. It's always presented. It's always there. Accept it. Accept it. This is reality. Believe the lie. Too often we go, well, shoot, I can't do anything about it. I'll go along with it. And we yield our spiritual authority because you have to give up on the word of God. Paul has told them, first letter, verse 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. What is needed today is men and women, godly men and women who will just simply stand and be immovable, who realize that there is, right, our government is pushing on you to redefine what God has told us, what marriage is. There is a society that says, you will accept me, you will compromise, you will bow the knee, you must bow the knee. I think of those three Hebrew boys who say, you know what, I'm going to be immovable. My God can deliver me, but even if he doesn't, I'm not going to bow the knee. Just like our scripture reading, right? What will happen? What happens to God's church when God's people stop following God's word? Well, they, they prop up some idols. The psalmist tells us, those who make them will become like them. There's the challenge there's the war. God has said, you need to step into this. Stand fierce in this. It's not your authority. It's God's authority. He's looking for men and women, godly men and women, who will simply bring clarity of Scripture, proclaim God's truth, say, no, this is who Jesus is. All of Scripture is focused on Him. We won't be those who jettison the Old Testament because we just can't reconcile it. You don't. the New Testament doesn't make sense without the Old Testament. Popular today. We'll build, we'll use our resources, right? Build the church. See lost souls come, build them up. And we'll do by God's Spirit and His grace live it the best we can consistently. See, I believe like you. I'd imagine, I pray you believe with me too. You are convinced that a place without Christians. Without Sunday school or life groups, we could say, or churches and Bibles, it's a place too much like hell for anyone to live in. There's going to be a change in our culture. You must exercise your spiritual authority. You must live God's Word. Your family, your influence, and your work, where you go, be immovable. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the challenge of your word. I am immensely challenged by it. And I thank you, Lord, that when Paul says, uh, uses the first person plural, we, that I know I don't stand by myself. My brothers and sisters, I stand with them, and they stand with me. Thank you for your spirit that brings about the conviction to know this is your word. What our world needs is men and women who actually believe the truth of the Bible. It is the answer, the greatest need that we see or that we know is to be reconciled to our God. The only way to reconcile us is through the shed blood of Christ and Him alone. So Lord, I pray for us this morning, the different situations of life that you are walking us through, different places of conviction and where we're at in our spiritual maturity and our, our walk with you. I pray, Lord, that you would make us very mindful of your presence that you are doing and completing the good work in which you've begun in us and make us, Lord, to be immovable, not unloving, not careless, not heartless, but, Lord, immovable. We would love those with the love of Christ, that we would serve those as Christ served us, that we would be those who would shine a light in the dark places that we would see, Lord, by your grace, souls come to believe in you. Let that be our hearts and our motivation to glorify you. Let us be like John the Baptist. Lord, you must become more. And we would become less. People would see Christ. Lord, let us live out your truth by your spirit for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.